Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying the Eightfold Path. This is our group learning program where each Sunday and Wednesday we get together at 9 p.m. Thai time in order to study the teachings of the Buddha and help you along this path to enlightenment. We're using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, as our source text for this program. And each Sunday, we progress chapter by chapter through this book and help you to learn and understand what it is that you're reading and any of the material that's in that chapter, as well as any of the additional resources that you might have pursued at the end of the chapter. Because this is a time where you can learn live, ask questions, seek guidance and clarification on anything that you need to understand related to this path because while you need guidance and you need a teacher to seek guidance with this is really an independent journey where you're actively working to learn reflect and practice the teachings so that you can see the truth and gain wisdom it's when you see the truth for yourself that the mind then attains this wisdom which helps the mind to then start functioning in the world very differently than it did in the unenlightened state as you learn this wisdom and progress along this path you will make wiser and wiser decisions about certain things in your life and this path to enlightenment the eightfold path is all about exposing to you the natural law of gamma and helping you to see the wholesome choices that you can be making in order to progress in training the mind along this path to enlightenment. The number one goal of this path is to eliminate discontentedness from the mind. This is those pleasant feelings, those painful feelings, those feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So painful feelings would be things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, all of these discontent feelings that are not just painful, but pleasant and also neither painful nor pleasant can be eliminated from the mind. But it requires you to learn and understand the teachings so that you can then go off and practice them and independently observe and see that they're truth. And as you do that, this wisdom will help awaken the mind so that you'll make better and better choices. So as I teach today, this eightfold path, just like I've shared in previous classes, don't believe anything that I share with you. Your belief in these teachings isn't actually going to help you progress to enlightenment because belief, you don't know whether it's right or wrong or if it's true or false. You don't really have wisdom if you're just believing in something. 
And people can believe anything that they would like to believe. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth. What Gautama Buddha's teachings are about is helping you to learn the truth so that then you seeing the truth on your own through independently verifying these teachings, you then have wisdom. I've used analogies about this in the past where we've talked about Santa Claus. And at one time you might have believed in Santa Claus. And that belief at some point got more refined where you know you saw presents under the tree, you saw Santa Claus at your local shopping area, you heard Christmas carols or what have you, and this belief got more and more developed. But at some point in your life, you independently discovered that Santa Claus doesn't actually exist. And then you had the truth. And now you have the wisdom that Santa Claus doesn't exist. And no matter how many Santa Clauses you see on TV or at the local mall or pictures of Santa Claus, you know that Santa Claus doesn't exist and your mind is unshakable on this topic. Well, there's many things about this world that the unenlightened mind doesn't understand. And that's what keeps it trapped in the unenlightened state. It's called ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. And through journeying on this path, instead of having belief, you learn the truth through a teacher, but then you don't believe that. You go off and you reflect on those teachings, even reflecting here in class, seeking clarification, asking questions. And then you also practice the teachings to actually change the condition of the mind to improve it so that it functions in the world very differently than it did before it understood these natural laws of existence. Because it's a real struggle to exist in a world that we don't understand. And that's essentially what the unenlightened mind experiences when it's experiencing anger and frustration, irritation and guilt and shame and fear and happiness, excitement, elation and boredom and loneliness, resentment and jealousy. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. And it's doing things that are based on this unknowing of true reality. And because of that, it experiences this discontentedness. And it's not until you deeply learn, reflect and practice these teachings that the mind then gradually awakens through this training. When the Buddha spoke about the Four Noble Truths, he clearly described what causes the mind to be discontent. And he then explained that there's this entire path to eliminate discontentedness in the mind. And this is what we're going to be talking about today is the Eightfold Path, the entire path of how you need to learn and practice in daily life in order to awaken the mind. As we go today, I'm going to be pausing at different times in order to allow you to ask questions. And you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and get it asked during the class. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So thank you for being here. I'm really pleased to see that you are interested to learn Gautama Buddha's teachings. And now let's talk about this path to enlightenment where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently and no longer experience these discontent feelings. I have a visual aid here that will help you see the path as I'm talking about it and progressing. 
but you're going to need to take notes potentially because in a previous series of classes, I laid out a lot of details on this path over the course of three separate classes. But in this class, I'm going to be covering the path in just one class as a way of studying to a certain level of depth. But then, of course, as I mentioned, letting you actually ask questions as we progress. So if you have questions, you can ask those. If you would like to take notes, you're welcome to do that because it's going to help you to understand these teachings. And then, of course, this book that you can either get a printed copy or you can download the PDF. You have my words in there, but today is all about really expanding beyond what's in the book and helping to clarify any questions that you might have. Last week, we talked about the Four Noble Truths, which is describing the problem, which is all unenlightened minds will experience discontentedness. So if you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, these are painful feelings and you know that the mind is unenlightened. If you experience pleasant feelings where the mind gets happy, excited, or elated based on some external condition, then you know the mind is unenlightened because the mind's internal feelings are being based on some external condition. And then that feeling of happiness, excitement, and elation is temporary. It's impermanent. It fades. And then the mind might move to sadness or anger, frustration, or some other feeling. And then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant which are things like boredom or loneliness or shyness. These things are all neither painful nor pleasant the way that I see them. They're, they're like uncomfortable or dissatisfying to the mind. And this is what the unenlightened mind is going to experience. That's the first noble truth. All unenlightened minds will experience discontentedness. The second noble truth is that what causes discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. The mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent, while essentially everything in the world is impermanent. The mind grabs on and it wants to hold on to something. It has wants or expectations, and this is referred to as craving, desire, attachment. Because of the wants and expectations, this longing with a strong eagerness, the mind is longing for certain pleasant feelings. And if it gets the objects of its affection, then it experiences that happiness, excitement, and elation. But it's temporary. It's short-lived. And then it fades. If it doesn't get what it wants, then the mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated. This is the painful feelings. And sometimes the mind doesn't even know what it wants. And this is kind of sometimes loneliness or boredom that it experiences, right? This is the cause of discontentedness is the mind is longing for something with a strong eagerness. That craving, desire, attachment, expectations, wants, grasping, holding, in the unenlightened state, we will typically blame others for our painful feelings. But in reality, it's the mind producing these feelings itself. So it's important to understand the cause of discontentedness is in your own mind, the craving, desire, attachment. The third noble truth is to eliminate discontentedness 
you need to eliminate craving desire attachment because craving desire attachment is the cause of discontentedness and it all resides in the mind then to eliminate discontentedness the mind needs to be trained not to have that craving desire attachment where it has mental longing with a strong eagerness and by training the mind to eliminate that then the mind can reside peaceful calm serene and content with joy because it's no longer longing externally for these pleasant feelings therefore it's not basing its inner feelings on external conditions and it can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. But that comes with training. The primary training to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is breathing mindfulness meditation, which we teach as part of this program, and practicing generosity, which we also teach as part of this program later as we get moving later in the program. But that major problem, that primary problem that the Buddha discovered, craving desire attachment, is all remedied through breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. There's some other ways that we work to eliminate this, but this is kind of like the general ongoing training that we use in order to eliminate craving desire attachment. And then that fourth noble truth, which helps to comprise this right view, the first step, here of this Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. So in four statements, the Buddha explains the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution to the problem, and the complete solution, which is the Eightfold Path in these four simple statements. So right view if we want to kind of encapsulate a lot of these detailed teachings is essentially accepting responsibility for your own thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of these things that are produced in the mind are because of the mind. With wrong view, a person will blame a situation or will blame another person for causing them to be angry. You cause me to be angry or this situation is causing me to be angry, but that's actually not the truth. That's that ignorance or unknowing of true reality that the unenlightened mind is walking around with. So in order to have right view, somebody needs to be able to see that they are in fact causing all of their own discontent feelings. And by accepting and understanding and seeing this very clearly, when you know that you're the one causing your own discontent mind, that by itself is quite liberating because now you only need to focus on training your own mind to eliminate discontentedness. You don't need to go around and train everyone else in the world to do things your way. Instead, you train your mind to learn and practice these teachings, all of these teachings that the Buddha shared, and then through doing so, you will be able to eradicate this discontentedness from the mind. But if you don't have right view, if you truly think that other people are causing you to be angry or a certain situation is causing you to be angry, then why would you ever spend time to learn and practice Gautama Buddha's teachings? Because it's everyone else's fault that you're angry or that you're frustrated or that you're feeling guilt or shame 
or you're feeling bored or lonely. It's everyone else's fault. So why would you ever dedicate time, effort, and energy to studying these teachings? So you have to have right view in order to be able to then put together all the other pieces of the path. One way to think about this word right in front of all of these steps that we're going to talk about is you can think about righteous, you know, not necessarily right and wrong all the time, but righteous. It's, it's very righteous to understand that you have caused all the discontentedness, every single emotion and feeling that you've ever experienced. It's all been caused by your own mind. And then that's why you can actually eliminate it as part of this path. So let me just pause here for a moment and see if we have any questions related to right view before we move on to the rest of the path, because this is so important as part of developing your life practice is to understand right view. All right. So are there any questions on right view? And we covered this last week in our class and we've covered this at other times as well. So there may not be any questions right here. Yeah, it seems there are no questions at this time. All right. So with right view and understanding that each individual that has an unenlightened mind is causing their own discontent feelings, now it's a matter of learning the path in order to train the mind. This Eightfold Path is your life practice. So the second part, the second step of this Eightfold Path is called right intention. And while I'm going to be teaching these step by step, you're really going to be learning and practicing all of these things at one time, kind of dialing them in more and more refined as you go in life. So right intention is all about having the practice of harmlessness, understanding that any harm that you put out into the world is going to come back to you. There's actually three individual parts to right intention that I've covered in the past. But as a summary, you need to understand and practice harmlessness and non-ill will, or in other words, practicing loving kindness. Because what the Buddha is really doing in this Eightfold Path is he's helping you to see more and more clearly the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect and action result essentially the result of our decisions. If we didn't have right intention, if we were interested in harming, and even, even if we didn't have the conscious decision to harm, but we were kind of subconsciously causing harm because we don't understand what we don't understand, then the mind is putting harm out into the world, so therefore harm is going to come to you. If you, for example, once we get into right speech, if you are speaking with harshness, aggressiveness, if you're performing bodily actions or livelihood that is harmful in the world, then that harm is going to come back to you. So it's really important here in this second step of the Eightfold Path that you develop the intention or the thought or the thinking that you are not interested in harming anyone or any being this will help you to cultivate the rest of the path. Without having that intention of harmlessness, you wouldn't be able to cultivate the rest of the path because the whole rest of the path is all about not causing harm to other beings through things like our speech, our actions, our livelihood. 
and then also by reducing the harm in our own mind through practicing right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So with right view and right intention, we call this the category of wisdom, that with the wisdom of things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, and understanding right intention, which is harmlessness, then this mind now has the wisdom to add on to it the moral conduct that needs to be practiced in order to extinguish any unwholesome gamma or the unwholesome decisions that you've made in the past, you're going to need to extinguish that. So if in the past you've spoken to people harshly or aggressively, or if you've done bodily actions that have harmed people, you're going to need to extinguish this harm that you're causing in the world by increasing your wholesome speech, your wholesome actions, and potentially your livelihood to bring your practice up closer and closer and closer to the ideal life practice where you're not causing harm in the world. This third step of right speech, this is all about how we can potentially harm through our communication, whether it's our spoken language, which that's all there was during Gautama Buddha's lifetime. So this was called right speech. But nowadays, not only do we speak, but we have telephone conversations, we have text messages, we have private chats, we have Facebook posts, we have emails, we have all different ways of communicating. So you might see this as right communication is how do you ensure that your communication verbally, but of course sometimes showing up in text format, is done in a way that doesn't cause harm to others. Because if you harm people through your speech, then their mind is going to get conditioned to the harmfulness that you're causing. And more and more people are going to then speak to you and communicate with you in the same way that you're communicating with others. So if you train the mind to only speak to people using right speech, then that over time, that will extinguish any harm that you've caused in the past and more and more and more people around you will gradually start to speak to you in the same ways that you're speaking to them using the teachings of right speech. In right speech, the Buddha talks about not having gossip, not having idle chatter, not having false speech or lies. These are some of the general ways that he talks about it. He talks about deceit, but he really clarifies right speech when he talks about the five factors of well-spoken speech. In the five factors of well-spoken speech, he clearly lays out exactly what we need to do in order to bring our speech up to a point where we're not causing harm to any beings. And what he says is that in practicing these five factors, we will ensure that we're not causing harm. The first factor is that we speak at the right time. If we speak at the wrong time, if we're interrupting people, it's going to cause harm because people don't like it when they're being interrupted and you're gonna find that people interrupt you. Another aspect of right time or speaking at the appropriate time is if your mind is angered and frustrated or irritated, that's the wrong time to be speaking with somebody about some particular thing. You should calm the mind, 
settle the mind before you actually engage in conversation. If that means if you're writing an email, you need to get up and walk away from the computer, or if that's when you're in a conversation, you need to put that on pause, step away for a while before you can re-engage on that topic, whether it's a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, make sure you're speaking at the right time where the mind can be aware, it can be concentrated, and it can ensure that you're practicing these good wholesome teachings because if it's the wrong time, you're gonna be causing harm, so therefore harm's gonna come back to you. The second factor of well-spoken speech is to speak the truth. Ensure that you're a truth speaker, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world. Because if you go around lying to people and telling false truths or being deceitful, then people are going to learn that you don't speak the truth. And people are gonna know that. And then you're gonna find that people are deceptive and tell you things that aren't the truth as well. And you're gonna find it very difficult in your personal professional relationships to be developing these relationships and benefit from them if you're lying to people. So ensure that everything you say is the truth. The third factor is that you speak gentle. This is where you look at your word choice, your tone, your tempo, and ensure that you're not speaking harshly or rough with people. Ensure that you speak gentle with people. And this will ensure that you're not causing harm. The fourth factor is that you speak beneficially or with purpose, that you don't just have idle chatter where it's kind of erroneous, frivolous speech and it's not beneficial to others. Because if you speak in a way that is just idle chatter and frivolous speech, over time people are going to learn that whenever this person speaks, they're not benefiting me or the other people, so why should we even talk to this person? So you would like to be sure that as you speak in all conversations that you're speaking beneficially with a purpose and it's helpful to others. Then the fifth factor is that you speak with a mind of loving kindness. The opposite of loving kindness would be with hatred or anger or ill will, right? And there's lesser versions of that too. When someone's frustrated or irritated or annoyed, they might speak in a way that's very unkind or disrespectful or impolite. So it's important that when you're speaking that you do so with a mind of loving kindness. And then the Buddha sums all of this up and he talks about speaking blamelessly without blaming other people. Because if you blame somebody for something, even if it was an, a mistake, truly a mistake, then nobody likes to be blamed for things because they were just made an honest mistake. Instead of blaming people and looking to assign blame or fault, just look for a way to get to the solution because the problem of the mistake is in the past. If you're having a conversation with somebody about a mistake, it doesn't benefit you to blame them and make them feel that they're at fault because they already know that. And what's most important for you in that situation is to find solutions to problems. So if you speak this way with all five factors and you aren't blameful, then what you're going to find is that your conversations go really, really well. And rather than believing these five factors and thinking that they could potentially be true or false, 
What I would suggest you do is go through past conversations in the mind after class at some point, conversations that went really, really well. And you and the other person walked away feeling that, wow, this was a really great conversation. And what you're going to notice is all five of these factors were being practiced, including blamelessness. And then look at conversations that you had difficulties in and, and perhaps ended with frustration or irritation or annoyance or both of you guys being angry or hostile towards each other. And what you're going to notice is that either one or more of these five factors weren't being practiced. And that's why the conversation fell apart. And that can be really helpful for you to see that these teachings are indeed truth. So that's a way that you can reflect on this and looking at things that happened in the past. A way that you can implement this into your life and into practice is from this point forward, now that you understand the five factors of well-spoken speech and to speak blamelessly, you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and instantly be able to practice this because the mind has been doing what it's been doing for a very long period of time. You need to slowly, gradually train the mind to come up to these five factors of well-spoken speech as the ideal way of practicing all the time. So now, from this point forward, when you have a conversation and it goes really well, and now you're by yourself, reflect on that. Look at your conversation you had in a certain day and be like, wow, when I spoke with Barbara or Robert or whoever, then notice how you and that person, even though they might not even know the five factors of well-spoken speech, both of you were practicing them very, very deeply. And that's why the conversation went so well. And then from this point forward, when conversations don't go well for you, notice how you and or the other person is not using these five factors of well-spoken speech. Rather than beat yourself up and feel guilty or shameful that you didn't practice these five factors of well-spoken speech, because it's going to take you many months and maybe even a few years to kind of nail this down and get it perfect every single time. Rather than feeling guilty or shameful, look at the conversation after it's done and look at what factors you didn't practice well. Did you not speak at the right time? Did you not speak the truth? Did you not speak gently? Did you not speak beneficially? Did you not speak with a mind of loving kindness? Did you blame people? Were you blameful? And whatever you lacked in that conversation, that the conversation fell apart, now in future conversations, just work to improve that more and more so that you can refine your practice and bring your practice up closer and closer to this ideal practice of right speech. And this would be somebody who's actively working on the path to improve their speech. And the more and more that you speak this way, you will find that your personal and professional relationships will continue to grow and blossom. Now, if you've been harsh in past conversations with people, or you've spoken with hatred, or you've spoken in a way that was unpurposeful or unbeneficial, if you've spoken at the wrong time, for example, then these people that are still involved in your life are used to you doing that. So just because you change your conduct doesn't mean people around you are going to instantly change their conduct. 
you've got to understand that you've got to extinguish and clean up your unwholesome decisions from the past before you had this wisdom and before you had this understanding. So if you have a life partner or you have children or you have coworkers that you have been unkind to and you haven't spoken with right speech, know that you're going to have to do this for many, many months and for people to see this trend of you always speaking this way. And when they choose to continue to speak in harsh ways or unkind ways, but you continuing to speak in very kind ways, then they're going to slowly start seeing that they're the ones who are the problem, not you, because you've cleaned up your conduct. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on right speech. Hi, David. I was wondering, as we begin on this path, are the first two steps particularly important in that it's only through right view and right intention that we build a bridge essentially to the rest of the path? Yes, that's very true. Without right view, you wouldn't be able to build any of this other stuff on top of it because all this other stuff is all about you improving your life practice. So if you had wrong view, thinking that other people are the ones who are causing all the problems in your life, then why would you ever build out your life practice if you don't have the right view that you're actually causing all your own discontentedness? And if you truly had the intention to harm others, then you're going to have challenges refining your speech, for example, because this is a lot of work to improve the way that you speak and interact in the world. And if you're comfortable being harsh and angry and frustrated and uh, speaking at the wrong time or telling lies or speaking harshly and unbeneficially and with a mind of anger or hate and you're comfortable with blaming others, then why would you ever improve your practice? So you've got to get to the point where with right view, understanding that the harm you're putting out into the world is conditioning other people's minds to now return that harm back to you. You've got to get to the point where you have no interest in harming any other beings whatsoever. And you might not feel that way right now, or you might feel that on the surface, but not at a real deep level. And you've got to soak that into the mind so deeply that you just have no interest whatsoever to harm any being at all. It seems that in some sense, we come to class to develop right view and right intention. And then when we leave class, we work on practicing the rest of the path. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I think coming to classes like this and the group that I was talking about beforehand, like here in Chiang Mai, we have a, a small group of people who we get together on a weekly basis. And if you guys end up coming to Thailand for a retreat or something like this, you can cultivate your practice amongst other practitioners. And then when you move out into the world, you kind of have charged up your gas tank, so to speak, and you'll find it easier to practice these teachings around others. So coming to these classes on Sunday, Wednesday, and we also teach on Saturday as well, it's a way of being part of a community and around other practitioners who are practicing so that then you will find it easier to kind of emulate those practices in daily life. So one of the things that I aspire to do in all of these classes and all of my interactions 
is to practice right view, right intention, right speech, and all these other teachings so that you guys can see what it looks like for a practitioner to speak and use these five factors of well-spoken speech all the time so that then when you see this clearly, then you can maybe see things that you're like, oh, I like how David said that, or I like how James did that, or how Manal or Bassam did that. I'm going to start using that as part of my practice. And that's what it means to have wholesome friends and wholesome companions and comrades so that you can influence your mind more and more and more to practice these good, wholesome teachings and cultivate this eightfold path in the mind. Thanks, David. Let's go to Gloria now, who has her hand raised. Hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to comment on the teachings that I hear today. I am just so amazed that these are things that were known for hundreds of years. And look at us, we are in 2021. I feel like I have been blinded. It's just so wise. One of the issues I have noticed in my life is the communication, you know, like sometimes you talk to people around my, my, I would say my environment all my life. And one of the things that I noticed was interruption, where we're talking and then we were interrupting each other and then we get upset. And this is so like, these teachings are so old and it's just like, wow, why didn't I know about this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's so, it's like, another thing is um, right view, I, the way I, I understand it is like to, to see clear, things more clear, not no blaming other people. It's just, you know, taking responsibility. And, and that's, for me, that's like what I see as right view. It's like, wow. And it's, but it's because, you know, and I don't feel, I don't want to say I'm blaming, it's the environment, it's the way, like the behavior, the mind was trained not to see it or, to, to, to get used to all blaming, it's not me, it's others. And um, when in fact, uh, to have a clear mind, right view, is to understand that in, in reality, it's, it's, we need to re- be responsible for what is around us and for our actions and what, uh, what we say. So I just like, it's just so amazing, just like, wow, I feel like, how come I didn't know this for so many years and I will not have so many issues in my life? Yeah, that's 100% true, Gloria. We don't grow up in Western culture understanding these teachings. And this is the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. So while the physical body might be 40, 50, 60 years old, the mind hasn't developed with the wisdom of these teachings. And now that you are learning these teachings, just be grateful and appreciative that you have access to these teachings because now that you're starting to learn them, you can practice them and see the results as you practice them more and more. And this is why, you know, me now having rediscovered these teachings here in Thailand, my interest is to share them with all those who are interested in learning them. And because I deeply understand these teachings from here within Thailand, but I am from the West, I can now create this bridge, like you said, or James said, I think, uh, this bridge from, you know, Western world 
into a place like Thailand where you can get exposure to these teachings. And now through deeply practicing them, you can clean up all your gamma or your moral conduct so that you can then now realize the benefits of having done so. Well, a question from Sonara. She says, Mr. David, to practice right speech, we are supposed to avoid a idle chatter. But what exactly is idle chatter? Idle chatter is like frivolous speech, unpurposeful speech, unbeneficial speech, where it's not beneficial to the situation. If you've ever been around someone or if you've been this person in the past where just chit chat, just yada, 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 right? It's just like if you've ever been around someone like that or if you've ever done that yourself, maybe after drinking too much caffeine or something, it's like, whoa, hold on. You're kind of harming the other person because they're having to listen to all of that and process all of that. So if you're looking to not cause harm to others, be sure that your speech is beneficial, which means clear, concise, to the point, not all these extra frivolous words. So when you sit down with somebody, you know, you meet someone for the first time or you get to know somebody, you know, there's nothing wrong with like when I see Bill, I haven't seen Bill for two weeks when I see him next. So how was your trip in Kosamui? What did you do? What kind of things were you up to? You know, it's beneficial because it's building a relationship. It's helping to establish a closeness and understanding of each other as human beings. But, you know, if Bill was like, oh, I did this and I did this and I did that and then I did this and then I, which he won't do, but if that's what the conversation became, then it's putting a lot of frivolous speech into someone's mind that then they have to process that, right? So when you speak, you would like to make sure that you're purposeful in your speech, that you're clear, that you're concise, that you're to the point. And if you need to talk, talk and feel comfortable to talk, but just be sure that you do it with a purpose and real clarity in your speech. Okay, thanks teacher. No more questions for now. All right, so moving into the fourth step of the Eightfold Path, which is right action. So far, we've talked about right intention, right speech. Now we move into right action because right intention is kind of like the thoughts in the mind. Right speech is our verbal communication. Right action is our bodily actions because we can cause harm in our bodily actions. So what we're doing with this path to enlightenment is we're purifying the mind but we also have to purify our conduct. And by purifying the mind through things like meditation and all the other teachings, our speech and our actions emanate from the mind. So if we have a very polluted mind with ill will, for example, then our speech is going to be that way as well. And if we have a very polluted mind with ill will, then our actions are going to be harmful as well. So we need to make sure that our intentions, our speech, and our bodily actions are all purified and that we're not causing harm to others. Because if we cause harm through these things, then harm is going to come to us. And the Buddha gives us some basic pointers here on what right action would be, or in other ways to say it is what wrong action would be. But keep in mind that a way to think about right action is just don't cause any harm through your bodily actions. He talks about things like killing, of course, if we kill other beings, 
this is a bodily action that causes harm, so therefore harm comes to us. And we know this to be true because if we went out and killed other beings, then we would find ourselves in trouble with the law, right? We would end up having to go to jail, for example. And even in situations where someone has been given the authority to kill, there's still harm there, right? There's the societal laws, but then there's this kind of moral natural laws of existence. So someone can legally go off into war, for example, and their government has given them permission to kill other beings, right? And they can go off and kill and come back and legally in society, they won't go to jail for that. But this is why soldiers oftentimes come back with things like PTSD or depression or alcoholism and substance abuse. This is why they also come back and oftentimes commit suicide, right? Because they can't get away from the natural law of gamma. You can't run from that. Even though society laws have said it's okay for you to go off into war and kill, the mind still knows that it's done something wrong. And if you go off into the world and you kill other beings in any particular situation, you're going to experience harm. And some of these soldiers come back even with injuries, right? And they actually get killed themselves or they get amputations or uh, traumatic brain illnesses or things like this. All different kinds of handicaps and things like this because when you kill, there's going to be harm in the world. So therefore harm's gonna come back to you. So you should always work to ensure that you're not killing any human beings, of course, and don't allow any sponsored government or organization to tell you that it's okay for you to go do that because you're putting yourself in harm's way because you're causing harm. Harm is going to come back to you. If you kill animals or insects or things like this, your mind has to have a certain level of hate or ill will in the mind in order to kill animals, even insects or rodents and things like this. So that's not going to be exclusive just to those beings. You're going to find that that hatred and anger and ill will is going to come out in other places of your life as well. So you need to purify this mind like we talked about with right intention, ensure that you're interested in practicing harmlessness, and then with your bodily actions, be sure that you're not killing any beings. Then another part of right action the Buddha talks about is not stealing. Because if we steal from people and we take things that don't belong to us, this other person worked really hard in order to acquire the resources that they need to sustain their life. So by us taking it with our bodily action, it's causing harm to that person. So therefore harm's going to come to us. If we have sexual misconduct, and the Buddha gives very clear description of what sexual misconduct is, and we're gonna explore that two weeks from now when we talk about the five precepts. If we cause harm through our sexual conduct, we putting harm out into the world through our sexual conduct, harm is going to come back to us. And if we ingest substances that cause heedlessness, that's going to cause us harm, like drugs or alcohol or other substances that cloud our awareness of mind and inhibit concentration. This is going to cause harm to our own physical body and our mind, and we're going to be more likely to then 
slip up in our speech and slip up in our intentions and other things. And this is where we're going to actually be causing a lot of harm because we've polluted our mind. So now we're going to be causing harm in the world and harm's going to come back to us. There's also gambling, which can cause harm in the world. If you're gambling, having such a craving, desire, attachment to make money through betting on a game of chance and hoping that that's going to return some money to you, you can actually have a lot of problems because this can become very addictive. It can suck you in. It can take your resources and inhibit you from being able to provide for yourself and your family as part of you getting addicted to gambling. So that's another aspect of the Buddhist teachings that you should think about when you're thinking about right action. Right livelihood is all about how we sustain our life. Our livelihood is like our occupation or our day-to-day activity. Like are we a doctor, a nurse, a a garbage collector, a janitor, a teacher, a computer programmer, a a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad? How are we conducting ourselves as a livelihood to sustain our life? And the Buddha gave just five livelihoods that cause harm in the world. And if we conduct any of these livelihoods and we attach our life-sustaining resources to these five livelihoods, then we're going to be causing harm in the world. And by attaching our income and sustaining our life to these five livelihoods, then our mind is going to be fixed to it. And we're going to want to do these things more and more and more. But by us attaching our livelihood to these wrong livelihoods, then that means we're causing harm in the world. So harm is going to come back to us. I'll share these five wrong livelihoods with you. The first one is if we produce weapons, because weapons are meant to harm other beings, kill other beings. So things like guns and swords and missiles and any kind of weapons that are going to inflict damage or pain or death on another individual, it's going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, we're going to experience harm as a result of this. And there's all kinds of examples that I could give you of people that have been in that field that do that work as a livelihood and it's caused them harm. Because remember, you don't want to believe these teachings. You want to understand them and see the truth for yourself. The second one is if we have a livelihood that's based on living beings, this would be like human trafficking or slaves or selling animals, things that involve living beings because we're causing harm by kind of enslaving these people or these beings to do certain work like human trafficking or slaves or, you know, puppy mills and things like this. These are all causing harm in the world. So therefore harm is going to come to us if we do that kind of work. The third one is if we sell meat as part of our livelihood, because in order to sell meat, there would need to be the killing of animals and then we sell the meat. And by doing so, we're causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm's going to come to us. And we can see this very, very clearly right now with COVID-19. The best look at where COVID-19 came from is a market that was selling living beings and killing animals in order to sell meat. If we weren't doing these unwholesome things in the world, then this unwholesome disease and virus wouldn't be affecting the millions of people that it's affecting in the world right now. 
we actually caused this ourselves because of our close contact with animals that virus was able to jump over into the human population and now spread throughout the world and there's many more of these waiting in the animal world the more that we continue to sell living beings and sell meat and we have that close contact with animals we're going to continue to experience these type of mass viruses that are spread throughout the world so if we purify our livelihood and we don't do those then we'll experience better results and there's other examples that i could give you as well and that you might know about as well then if we sell substances that cause heedlessness this would be like drugs and alcohol and other substances that pollute the mind if we sell these things as a livelihood then harm is going to come to us because we're causing harm to others i'm not sure about other places but if you look at places that get robbed often it's usually liquor stores that are getting robbed and people are getting killed in these liquor stores because that's where robbers will tend to go and thieves will tend to go and they will rob liquor stores or if you're selling drugs there's a likelihood that you might get murdered or arrested or you're going to be very fearful looking over your shoulder of whether somebody's coming to steal from you you may get addicted to the substances that you're selling so selling substances that cause heedlessness causes great harm in the world so therefore harm is going to come to you and then the fifth one is if you sell poison poison is meant to kill other beings so therefore if you sell poison then harm is going to come to you so these are the five wrong livelihoods that now with right speech right action right livelihood this rounds out our moral conduct and if you practice with these teachings in mind then you will have purified your moral conduct and over a period of time many months and years you will extinguish any unwholesome decisions that you made in the past so if you're talking to people and communicating to people in a harsh and aggressive way now if you extinguish that through bringing your speech up closer and closer to right speech then over time you will extinguish all the unwholesomeness of other people's minds being conditioned to speak to you in the same way that you speak to them or if you've caused harm through your bodily actions by you stopping to do that and you not causing harm through your bodily actions over time you will have purified your bodily actions and no harm will come back to you related to that and likelihood with your livelihood if you're involved in any of these livelihoods now you can gradually move towards a more wholesome livelihood and then purify your livelihood so that now over time you will extinguish any harm that you've caused in the world and you will experience good wholesome results as a part of having a good wholesome livelihood one of the things that i would like to add here before i open up for questions is that as we talked about right intention right speech and right action not only is it important for you to practice each of these individually but also keep in mind that these three things need to be in sync with each other oftentimes we don't have any intention of harming anyone whatsoever the thought or the thinking or the intention is perfectly that you're interested in not causing harm to others but because you're not practicing those five factors of well-spoken speech you come across in a way that people hear you speak 
and they are harmed because of the speech. So you need to make sure that your intentions emanate from this place of harmlessness, but that then becomes in sync with your right speech. And likewise, with your right action, that while your right intention is emanating from a place of harmlessness, that your bodily actions do the same thing. Because if you get lazy or you get complacent and you just kind of walk about the world, you might bump into things or step on things and break things without putting real intention to actually having done it. You might have actually made a mistake or inadvertently caused an accident with your bodily actions. So it's important that not only do you practice those individually, but you make sure that your intention, speech, and actions are in sync so that more and more people can clearly see that you have no interest in harming others through your moral conduct. So with that, let me just open up to questions before we start talking about the last three steps of the Eightfold Path, which is part of mental discipline. I want to ask a question of clarification about right livelihood. If one finds themselves in an occupation that may not be in alignment with the right livelihood, it's not exactly recommended that one leaves that occupation considering one is using that to support their family. It's more about actively moving toward a livelihood that is right. Is that correct? Gradual movement. Exactly, James. All of these teachings are gradual movement. So that's why the Buddha didn't use guilt, shame, or fear to teach these teachings and motivate people to learn them and practice them because there needs to be these gradual shifts. So for example, if somebody was into prostitution or selling drugs or things like this, know that as long as you're doing those things, you're causing harm, so therefore harm can come to you. But what I would suggest is that you find way to really shift and you know move in the direction of a wholesome livelihood so that you can purify this aspect of your practice and then you won't experience any harm as a result now there could be harm that comes to you later on as a result but at least you're out of that occupation you're out of that livelihood and you can distance yourself further and further from it by making good wholesome choices to move away from it thanks david we have no more questions, but I did want to highlight a very interesting point that you made that oftentimes in society, we're taught to revere the law, but you pointed out that societal law and whether or not an act is legal doesn't essentially remove its karmic consequences. I thought that was a very important point to make. Yeah, you know, the, the law, the societal law is imperfect. We know that because we see things happening around us all the time that it's like, hold on a second, that person should have probably gone to jail or that person should have had something happen to them, but it didn't happen because that was happening on a societal level. And these laws that we make in society are imperfect because they're made by human beings. But this karmic law, this natural law of gamma, you can't run and hide from it. That's why even though society says it's okay to go kill other people in a foreign country as a war, but you can't come here home and kill other people on the street, but you can go over there to that country and kill people over there. You can't get away from that because you are killing. 
And part of the natural law of gamma is that if you're killing, you're causing harm, so therefore harm is going to come to you. And this is why we see so much harm amongst our population of soldiers throughout the world, is that even though they've been given permission to harm and kill on a societal level, they can't get away from the gamma that they've produced as a result of it. And that's why we see the harms in that population of people as we do. The other thing to talk about in terms of right livelihood is oftentimes I see people misunderstanding this one. They think that in order to practice right livelihood, that you need to ensure that things that you're purchasing, for example, is made through a right livelihood. So for example, if you purchase a certain product, like an electronic device or something, and that happened to be made by multiple vendors and there was some slave labor that went on in order to produce that electronic device. If you purchase that electronic device, that doesn't mean you're practicing wrong livelihood because that purchase has nothing to do with your livelihood. Your livelihood is solely around how you choose to sustain your life, not how you choose to purchase products. Now, if you knew that there was a factory that was producing a product with slave labor and you chose not to purchase that product, that would be very wise because you're not supporting the slave labor. But that has nothing to do with your livelihood whatsoever. That's about more about right action, for example, that you wouldn't want to cause harm through your bodily action. So if you're purchasing something that you know is based on slave labor, then you're causing harm through this bodily action and you would be interested to not do that. So don't confuse right livelihood. If you get out on the internet and you study about right livelihood, you're gonna see a lot of people sharing different things. To have a right livelihood, you just need to make sure that you're not in any livelihoods related to those five that I mentioned. And that's pretty straightforward for anybody who's out there in the world that you can look at what you do to sustain your life and determine whether or not you're practicing any of these wrong livelihoods and if you are, just work to move away from them and get to a purified livelihood where you're not causing harm through your livelihood. Now moving into right effort. Right effort has four components to it or four aspects to it. Let's talk about it very generally. What right effort is generally is you're taking the effort to move unwholesome qualities out of the mind and you're working to arise wholesome qualities in the mind. That's an easy way to think about it. The way that I teach my young son is I say, kick out the bad stuff and bring in the good stuff, right? That's what right effort is and taking the effort to do that because sometimes we can get lazy or we can get complacent and you can be sitting somewhere and the mind's thinking about all this pleasurable things that you had in the past and you really wished you had those right now and you just kind of revel in those pleasant feelings. Well, someone who's really practicing right effort, as soon as they see those thoughts start to arise, they're going to cut them off because they know that those are unwholesome thoughts and they're going to arise wholesome qualities. Or if you notice that anger or frustration is starting to arise in the mind, then you take the effort to abandon that and arise wholesome qualities. This would be a simple application of right effort, eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities. 
But in reality, right effort has four aspects to it. The first aspect of right effort is any unwholesome qualities that aren't currently in the mind. You work to prevent them from coming into the mind. So an example of this is you probably have no aspiration to go out and kill another human being. That's not even in the mind. It's, it's not something that is in the mind and you should work to prevent that from coming into the mind. So that's the first aspect is prevent any unwholesome qualities from arising in the mind. The second aspect is any unwholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, you work to eliminate them from the mind. So if you currently are a selfish person or if you are hateful or you have frustration, work to abandon those and eliminate them from the mind. The third aspect of right effort is any wholesome qualities that have not yet arisen in the mind work to arise these wholesome qualities. So if you know that you're a selfish person and that's what's in the mind is work to eliminate that unwholesome quality and then this wholesome quality of generosity work to arise that in the mind. That's that third one. Any wholesome quality that hasn't arisen in the mind, work to arise that, like generosity, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. We're going to talk about these later in the program. So any wholesome qualities, work to arise them in the mind. If you're not meditating regularly or it's kind of you know spattered, that's something that you can work to arise in the mind or you're not even you know, meditating at all, work to arise that in the mind. Take the effort to arise this wholesome quality in the mind. The fourth aspect of right effort is any wholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. Okay, so there's these four aspects. Let me just go through them again prevent any unwholesome qualities from arising in the mind, any unwholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, work to abandon them, arise any wholesome qualities that have not yet arisen in the mind, any wholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, work to support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. This would be an application of right effort. And it takes your effort to do this. It's not going to just happen by itself. You have to take the effort to do it. Right mindfulness. I generalize this and teach it as awareness of mind. But there's actually four aspects to right mindfulness as well. But at this point, just understand it as awareness of mind, where you need to be aware of the thoughts and the feelings that arise in the mind. And this is really important. Because by having awareness of mind, you can then apply right effort. Because by having awareness that there is hatred or anger that's starting to arise, you can now apply effort to abandon it and arise loving kindness. Or by having awareness that the mind is selfish and it's stingy. You are aware of that in the mind and now you can take the effort to abandon it and arise the wholesome quality of generosity. And there's other examples that we could go through like this. If you're aware that the mind is chatty and busy and 
always overactive, then you can work to eliminate that unwholesome quality and arise equanimity and calmness of mind, right? Calming the mind down. So awareness of mind is really important as part of this path is that you're always aware of the thoughts and feelings, perceptions, what's going on in the mind. And the way that you develop this awareness of mind is through the eighth step, which is right concentration. What right concentration is all about is practicing meditation. By practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, you develop singleness of mind, where you're only ever focused on one thing at a time. If your mind's really scattered and you're trying to think about multiple things at one time, it's going to be very difficult for you to have concentration. And therefore, it's going to be difficult for you to have awareness of mind. And therefore, it's going to be difficult for you to apply right effort to abandon the unwholesome quality and arise wholesome qualities because the feelings and thoughts are rapidly going through the mind so quickly, you're not ever concentrated on just one thing to be able to skillfully work with the thoughts and feelings that are arising in the mind. So it's this breathing mindfulness meditation practice that you do on a daily consistent basis two or three times a day to develop this singleness of mind, this concentration, and also awareness of mind, right? Mindfulness. That's why it's called breathing mindfulness meditation. By practicing this regularly, you're going to be developing your concentration, your focus, your clarity of mind more and more. You're going to be developing right mindfulness or awareness of mind more and more. So then you'll be able to apply right effort where you're cutting off the unwholesome thoughts, letting them go, and arising the wholesome thoughts. And as you do this more and more and more, you're cutting off these unwholesome thoughts and arising wholesome thoughts that the unwholesome thoughts won't arise in the mind because you've cut them off further and further and further and further down and you've uprooted the unwholesomeness and you've replaced it with wholesomeness. And that's where the mind moves into this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy because it's no longer experiencing any unwholesome thoughts whatsoever. This right concentration goes beyond meditation, though. Yes, meditation is important, but in order to develop concentration and singleness of mind, you've got to practice this in daily life. If you notice this whole eightfold path, there's many aspects of this. You've got to practice this all day long. So you meditate, yes, to develop right concentration, but also in daily life, you never allow the mind to do more than one thing at a time because it can't actually do more than one thing at a time anyway. So if you're watching TV, you just watch TV. If you're eating, you eat. If you're talking on the phone, you talk on the phone. You just do one thing at a time. So now you're not training your mind to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Because if your mind's rapidly cycling to thing to thing to thing, you're not going to have this mindfulness or awareness of mind. Therefore, you're not going to be able to apply right effort. So this is part of your mental discipline that in order to refine the mind and train it, Yes, we've got to do meditation, but we've also got to do all these things outside of meditation. Oftentimes, the focus of this practice to enlightenment becomes all about meditation for some people. It's just all about meditation. Yes, meditation is important. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment 
without meditation. But you also wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment with only meditation either. You need meditation, but you also need all these other things that are part of this path. If you break this down with meditation being one step, right concentration, and kind of just one component of that step, then meditation is about 10 or 12% of this path, which means for a certain period of time during your day, you're gonna be meditating, but you've got a lot of other hours in your day. And that's why you've gotta extend your practice to develop this life practice where you're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration at all times of your day. And it's going to be challenging. It's going to be a bit of a struggle. You're going to have to really strive to do this over a consistent period of time to gradually train the mind to come up to practicing this all the time. But as you do, it will become easier and easier as you put more and more of these pieces together. This is what I talk about upgrading the mind from version 1.0 of software, right? This unenlightened 1.0 version of the software to this 9.0 enlightened mind. You're gonna have to have various iterations of developing your life practice to refine and improve each one of these steps as you get closer and closer to this ideal mind functioning as an enlightened mind. And as you do, and you put more and more of this together, it becomes effortless, it becomes seamless, it becomes first nature, where the mind is just always functioning through this Eightfold Path. This is where the Buddha said that he had discovered a better way of life. The Buddha didn't say he had discovered a new religion. He said he discovered a better way of life. This is that better way of life through learning, and practicing these teachings on this Eightfold Path, you will bring your life practice up closer and closer to this ideal, and then it'll just become effortless where you're practicing this all the time and there's no discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. It's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently because you've now purified each one of these factors of the Eightfold Path. You've purified your life practice with this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So this is a kind of encapsulation of the Eightfold Path. And I would like to just turn things over to you guys for any questions. And then as we finish up our questions, I just have one thing to kind of give you a real summary of this in a real kind of short way. Hi, David. We have a question from Heather on Facebook. Can you escape bad karma or undo it by positive actions? You can't escape any unwholesome karma, but you can extinguish it through producing only wholesome karma. And that's what this Eightfold Path is all about. The Buddha described this Eightfold Path as the way to eliminate unwholesome karma. And the way that you eliminate all the unwholesome karma that you've produced in the past is by producing only wholesome karma. So let me explain this. Let's say in the past you have children or a life partner that you've spoken harshly to, you've spoken aggressively to, uh, you haven't been always kind and polite. And because of that, they're also not kind and polite to you. There are certain times where they're rough or harsh and talk unkind to you. 
Well, now that you've learned this Eightfold Path and you're going to start practicing it more and more, you still are going to have to deal with those children and that life partner talking harsh and aggressive and unkind to you because that's what you've done in the past. So even though you purify your conduct and you gradually move up to this practice, but let's just say that you could snap your fingers and immediately start practicing this right away. If you even could, but you can't, but if you snapped your fingers and immediately started practicing this right away, your life partner and your children, their mind is still conditioned that you potentially were speaking to them unkind in the past. So you've got to extinguish that. So over time, they're going to be talking to you unkind and unpolite and disrespectful because that's what we did to them maybe in the past. And now we've got to maintain our practice. We've got to maintain the purity of our life practice and just keep practicing this life practice until they start to slowly, gradually realize that it's them who are talking unkind, unpolite and disrespectful and they have to purify their conduct. But you can't run from that. The fact that we did harm in the past, it's going to come back to us. But it's through purifying our conduct that we extinguish those unwholesome decisions that we made in the past by producing only wholesome decisions through practicing these teachings. And as we practice them more and more, we're making these good, wholesome decisions. Now we have to clean up kind of the world around us, not the entire world. But if you've been involved in unwholesome relationships that people are speaking to you unkind, you're going to have to deal with that as part of your awakening to enlightenment. You're going to have to address that situation. And there's multiple ways to address it. But the place to start is addressing your own conduct and purifying that. But there's no way to run or escape what we've done in the past. All we can do is purify our conduct, start producing more and more wholesome conduct. And then as we do, work to kind of clean up what we've done in the past. Thanks, David. Let's go to Gloria now, who has her hand raised. So um, one thing that came to my mind when I was um, listening to right concentration, um, and then I started looking at right view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, efforts, mindfulness. Um, I feel that all these are things that um, Kind of like when I hear to be in the in the present in the present moment, so I feel like the mind in meditation. I'm training my mind. I always felt I always it's just like because I'm so new with this. I I thought oh meditation, uh, you know what is this? I'm I'm gonna do it anyway because something inside me is telling me this is good, right? So but now I'm starting to learn. Um, so I'm learning that meditation is going to train my mind to um, to be, to learn, to be, to observe, um, to uh, be a oneness. Um, and in a way, it's like it's training, meditation is training my mind to observe all these eight Four part views in the present moment because all the time I am uh, just that's my life. My life is all the time I I the the things around me that has to do with right view, 
with intention, speech, action, livelihood. So, and the way is kind of like, it's been in the present moment and all the time being alert and present. And I guess that is also, that's meditation. Meditation is training my mind to do that. So I guess that's my question. Right, so let me help yes, you. Yeah. Let me help you, Gloria. So meditation is helping to pull all of this together and it's giving you this general training that you're doing each day, two or three times a day, doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. These are two important primary meditations that you do as part of this path. And yes, by bringing your mind into the present moment, that's what's gonna allow you to practice these because if your mind was in the past and it's in the future or it's overactive and jumping around, how could the mind really focus on those five factors of well-spoken speech in one conversation with this one individual in front of you if your mind's all the way in the past or your mind's all the way in the future? Or while you're in that conversation with your friend or your family or what have you, and your mind becomes aware of starting to be arising frustration or anger, how could you then apply right effort and cut that off and get back to right speech if the mind's in the past or it's in the future. So this is why bringing the mind into the present moment and developing that concentration, that singleness of mind is so important because if you're very aware of your intentions, your speech, your actions, what thoughts are coming to the mind and you're aware of that, you're applying right effort to cut off any unwholesomeness and arise wholesome thoughts, then you're really deeply applying your practice here through each one of these individual steps. And when you're in meditation, you're actually practicing all of these at one time. That's why meditation is so beneficial for you. Because when you sit down to meditate or lie or stand or walk or whatever kind of meditation you're doing, you're practicing right view at that moment. Because the reason why you're meditating is because you're acknowledging at a certain level, it's your mind that is needs training. So you're accepting responsibility for your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings at that moment. And you're choosing to meditate. So you're practicing at that moment, right view. And then you're practicing right intention. You're practicing harmlessness. You're not interested to harm anyone when you're meditating. And then, of course, when we're meditating, we're not speaking. So in some respects, we're practicing right speech. We're practicing right action. We're not causing any harm through our bodily actions while we're meditating. And then right livelihood. That's, you know, offline in terms of what your livelihood is. But in meditation, this is where meditation really comes in, is you're taking the effort to abandon unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. You're also practicing right mindfulness or awareness of mind, and you're developing right concentration or singleness of mind as part of breathing mindfulness meditation. So meditation is stringing together this entire eightfold path all in 30 minutes or an hour, however long you meditate for. And this is why when you're done with meditation, it's like, whoa, that was really beneficial. You really benefited and progressed through that meditation. Even if your mind was super busy, there was still some benefit there because your mind became aware of how busy it is. So that's why meditation is so beneficial. 
but meditation, especially breathing mindfulness meditation, is all about bringing the mind into that present moment while you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind and bringing the mind into the present moment so that now you can practice this whole eightfold path at each individual moment in each conversation that you're in all your waking hours you are every breath practicing this entire eightfold path more and more and more and as you do and you elongate your ability to practice this on an ongoing consistent basis you're going to be producing more and more wholesome results because you're making more and more wholesome decisions to practice this eightfold path at all times we have a question from jm how do you prevent from arising unwholesome thoughts that you currently do not have you can't necessarily prevent unwholesome thoughts to arise unless you're aware that they're not there right now right if they're not there like the example that i gave you of like if you're not interested in killing another human being and that's not a thought that's ever entered your mind you've got to prevent that from coming or if you've never thought about having sexual misconduct and you've always been loyal to all your partners then prevent that from coming into the mind so avoid the mind from bringing that in as soon as you even get the slightest little inclination that that thought may even potentially arise boom just cut it off right away don't even allow it to enter the mind so that would be the way to prevent any unwholesome thoughts. But any unwholesome thoughts that are currently in the mind, the way to get rid of them is as they arise, is cut them off sooner and sooner and sooner. And this is where the four aspects of right mindfulness become really important. I describe it in this first layer of teaching as awareness of mind. But in reality, there's actually four aspects to right mindfulness which are the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. If you can observe the unwholesome feelings through your bodily sensations and you can cut them off there, that's ideal because you don't ever allow them to come into the mind and become feelings. Before you get angry or frustrated, if you've ever paid close attention to this, there's going to be bodily sensations that start to trickle and you start feeling this in the body. If you can develop your awareness at that point where you start noticing certain feelings when they're not actually in the mind yet, they're just bodily sensations and you can cut them off there, then you're cutting them off closer and closer to the stump of the tree and you're going to be able to uproot this much better. Whereas if you allow it to move through the bodily sensations and then come into the mind and start producing feelings, it's a lot harder to get it out of the mind once it's already in the mind, right? The way I talk about this is like if you think of your mind like a bucket of water and your meditation is you scooping this water into this bucket and your water's clear and you're putting this water into this bucket, it's becoming more and more full you would like to keep this water as pure as possible so that you can drink it because the mind's thirsty. Well, if you can see that this person's coming towards you with poison to put into your water, then the wise thing to do would be to put a lid on that bucket and not allow the person to put poison in your water. 
because if you can avoid the poison going into the water, then your water stays pure. So if you can feel those bodily sensations starting to arise and you can cut it off there, then it never gets into the feelings. It never gets to the mind. It's like putting a lid on this bucket. But if the person does put the poison into the water, you can still get the poison out, but it's a lot more challenging at that point. So if you develop this awareness of mind where you can understand the four foundations of mindfulness and you can start being aware of the bodily sensations that occur prior to any feelings coming into the mind, then you can start cutting it off closer and closer to the stump and to the roots of the tree. It's like cutting the leaves, the small branches, the bigger branches, the trunk of the tree and getting all the way down to the actual stump. And eventually when you do that, it will no longer grow again. This is how you eliminate or prevent the unwholesome qualities from arising in the mind is that when you cut it back closer and closer to the stump, then eventually the feelings won't ever arise in the mind. But it takes practice and time to do that. And you've got to be aware of those bodily sensations. And as you get closer and closer to being aware of those bodily sensations and cutting them off sooner and sooner and sooner and like, nope, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that today. I'm not allowing those thoughts to come into the mind. Nope, I'm not doing that. And if you need to redirect the mind by getting up and walking outside or changing your activity or what have you, then do that so that you just cut those thoughts off and obliterate them is the language that the Buddha used. And this will slowly obliterate the craving desire attachment because you're now uprooting this out of the mind and you'll no longer experience the arising of those unwholesome thoughts. We have a question from Mika. Sir, how do you become aware of the bodily sensations before feelings start to arise? It happens so fast for me. If it's happening fast for you, that's because you're not slowing the mind down yet. You need to use breathing mindfulness meditation to slow the mind down. Because yes, when there's certain craving, desire, attachments that are really strong, then you can just go from being completely normal to enraged in like the snap of a finger. And that's the whole problem is that your mind is reacting to the situation rather than responding. So you've got to slow the mind down through practice. This isn't like a pill that you take and then you meditate once and everything's fixed. You've got to develop this life practice where you're meditating two or three times every day over a long period of time and you get more and more awareness of mind and then as the mind starts slowing down and you knock down some of these really intense cravings on some of the smaller ones you'll kind of notice this slow arising of these bodily sensations before they come into feelings of the mind and when you become aware of those sensations after a few times your mind gets tuned into it more and more and more but it sounds like you at this point don't have awareness of those bodily sensations and that's why you need to be practicing two or three times a day over multiple weeks and months and years to develop this awareness of mind now this enlightened mind where you completely eliminate discontentedness and it's permanently peaceful calm serene and content with joy it's not going to come in just a week or two or even a month or two or probably even a year or two 
right? It's a dedicated, consistent, determined, diligent practice that you have to apply yourself to. But the rewards are substantial. If you could click your fingers right now and completely get rid of discontentedness, I'm sure you would do that. But you can't. It's not possible to do that. So you've got to apply this gradual progress of learning this path and implementing it into your life more and more. So becoming aware of those bodily sensations is important, but you've got to develop this meditation practice and all these other aspects of the path to get more and more in touch with what's going on as these unwholesome things are starting to arise so that you can get in more and more touch with the bodily sensations that are arising so that you can cut them off there. That's not where people start, right? Like that's the whole problem. If your mind is experiencing discontentedness and, and fierce, strong discontentedness, it's because you're not aware of the bodily sensation. So where you're probably starting is at one of those other parts of the four foundations of mindfulness. You might be aware of the mental objects or you might be aware of the condition of the mind. You haven't developed your mindfulness or awareness of mind with the feelings and bodily sensations. So that's why you've got to commit yourself and be dedicated to this practice to develop this awareness of mind. Thanks, David. Let's get a Basam now for our Zoom questions. Well, uh, a comment from Manal about uh, moral conduct. She says, in the Hawaiian Islands, where I am currently, there is an ancient city called Hoponobono, which also underlines this very same, accepting total responsibility for our for our own uh, our own conduct in order to make reputations. I didn't hear a question in there, Basim. Did I miss something? Yeah, just a comment from uh, Manal. Oh, okay, just a comment from her. But where she's at, they also practice accepting responsibility for your conduct. Yep, this path is just so right on. Right, the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. His teachings have been around since that time for a reason, because they work. The challenge that we have in the world is that there's not that many people that really understand these teachings. And that's what you now have the opportunity to learn, reflect, and practice these to improve your conduct and improve your wisdom and improve your mental discipline. We don't have to go out and change the world. All you need to do is focus on your own mind, develop your own life practice. And by you doing that, you learning and you growing in this practice, you will develop a mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy over time. And if you dedicate your time to doing this, slowly learning, gradually reflecting, gradually practicing, and ramping up your practice closer and closer to this ideal, you will see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind will gradually improve. That's why these teachings aren't based on belief because you can see the truth right here, right now. A lot of times when we're learning various traditions, it's about doing something right now and hoping that when you die, something good's gonna happen, but you don't really know if that's true or not. With the Buddhist teachings, you can learn, you can reflect, you can practice, and you can see the results right now. There's a lot of students that within a couple of days or a couple of weeks see progress right away. And that's how you know that you're learning the truth is that the condition of the mind gradually improves and you see that this anger, 
this hostility that you once had in certain situations slowly reduces to frustration, irritation, annoyance. Eventually, the same things are continuing to happen around you, but the mind is completely peaceful. Where before, you would just get so enraged and so angry, and you're like, whoa, these teachings are actually working because my mind is completely peaceful. When I know six months ago, that would have just made me so crazy. I would have gotten so irritated by that. But now I'm completely fine. That's how you know you're learning the truth. That's how you know your practice is coming together and you're making progress on this path. So the more that we get dedicated to this, the more that you get dedicated to this, you'll see the truth for yourself that these teachings work. And the Buddha knew what he was talking about. That's why we call him the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. All he says, when I allow anger to arise and I feel it is caused by the action of someone else that I am angry, I understand this. This is wrong view. I find that even after my anger has subsided, I still struggle to have right effort, to have wholesome thoughts about the person and about the situation. Does this just require more and more practice? Yes, because right now you're getting angry at somebody else's actions because they're doing something based on their own free will, but your mind wants them to be doing something different, right? Your mind has craving, desire, attachment, that longing with a strong eagerness. You want something different than what they're doing, but you can't control that person because they have free will. They are their own decision maker and they're experiencing the results of their own conduct. So the only thing you can do is let go of wanting this person to be a different than they currently are. It doesn't mean that you agree with their intentions, their speech, or their actions, but you have to get to a point where you're no longer having a longing, a strong eagerness for them to be different than they are. It doesn't mean like, for example, with kids or other people that are involved in your life, you can still guide and influence and help them skillfully to improve their conduct, but it's your mind wanting it and craving it and expecting it that's causing your mind to be discontent. Now, once you're aware of that discontentedness and cutting that off and letting it go, you've just got to reinforce that you're causing this, you're causing this, you're causing this, and then look for ways to if it's your kids, for example, is to skillfully guide them to improving their actions, but not wanting it in a certain time frame or not demanding it, but instead guiding them skillfully. Holy continues asking, is it normal for it to arise suddenly after a long period of a content mind? Discontentedness can arise at any time. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment, it can arise at any time. If there's strong craving, desire, attachment, it can arise very quickly without the mind even realizing it. So the deeper the craving, desire, attachments are, the quicker and the more intense the discontentedness is going to be and the longer it's going to linger. So by you knocking this back with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity, as well as 
there's ways to skillfully work with certain craving desire attachments. And this is where a teacher can really help you with two or three when you first get started, knowing what certain craving desire attachments that you have, we can help you look at ways to skillfully eliminate this from your mind. And when you learn how to create these little plans for yourself, then that will then be able to be applied to other craving desire attachments that you don't even realize the mind has right now that are gonna arise later. When you start knocking down certain craving desire attachments and you start getting liberated from the discontentedness associated with those craving desire attachments, there's gonna be other ones that pop up. It's like whack-a-mole and they start popping up and you gotta start knocking them down. But if you do your breathing mindfulness meditation two to three times a day, and you're practicing generosity as a continuous ongoing thing, and then seek guidance with your teacher privately to put together a skillful plan to address some of the craving desire attachments that are arising. And then when you learn how to do this with two or three craving desire attachments, you can take that same methodology and apply it to other ones that come up as well. Another question from Holly, she says, what can a person do when feeling discouraged and consumed with thoughts, even during meditation? Yeah, I often think of discouragement like complacency. Sometimes it kind of can move into the complacency and there can be a lack of motivation where the mind gets discouraged because once again, that craving desire attachment, right? The mind wants to be somewhere that it's not. The mind wants this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy but yet it's still experiencing discontentedness. So it just keeps craving and craving and craving and wanting and wanting. So because it wants to be peaceful, it wants to be calm, it wants to eliminate this discontentedness, the discontentedness is coming in. It's getting disappointed. It's getting discouraged. That's discontentedness itself based on this craving of wanting to be somewhere else that it's not. You've got to just calm down and realize like, okay, this is a long journey. This is a long journey. It's not a short road trip. It's a long journey of many journeys of journeys. And you've just got to take your time. And when you notice that the mind maybe becomes complacent or lack motivation, okay, maybe it's like that for two or three days or a week or two. But at some point, you've got to invigorate the mind through investigating the teachings by coming to these classes, by reading the book, by listening to the podcast, by meeting with your teacher. This investigation of the teachings is going to spring up energy in the mind and it's going to produce joyfulness. But the way to kind of unburden the mind from this complacency or this sluggishness is to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation the enlightenment factor of energy and the enlightenment factor of joy and arising the mind to that place. Because remember, what we're going to talk about next week is called the middle way. You're bringing this mind into the middle way where the mind is optimized in the middle. Now, this is the middle, but I'm going to turn my hand like this, right? Because now think of this as the middle, as a graph. All the way along this path to enlightenment, the mind's going to be oscillating. It's going to get really excited and then happy and elated. Then it's going to drop down to sadness, despair, disappointment. And then it's going to go up and down and up and down and up and down. And it's been doing this your whole life. You just didn't realize it. Now you actually realize what it's doing 
and why it's doing it because of the craving desire attachment. Well, what's going to happen is instead of these big swings, as you practice more and more, it's going to kind of come more into the middle, but it's still going to be swinging like this. Even all the way up until you get to enlightenment where the mind's perfectly in the middle, you're going to go three months, six months where there hasn't been any discontentedness, and then boom, you're going to have some discontentedness. But every time you experience discontentedness, if it just creates craving where, oh, I don't like this discontentedness, I want to get away from it, then you're actually producing more discontentedness because your mind's continuing to crave. You've got to get to the point where it's like, okay, discontentedness, let me see let me investigate. Let me look at what's causing this so that I can eliminate this craving desire attachment. Because as long as you keep wanting what you don't have, you're actually going to just keep producing more and more discontentedness. You've got to stop this whole cycle of the mind having craving desire attachment. It becomes discontent. Now, the mind's discontent because it's discontent, right? Because the mind wants this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. It wants that so badly that whenever it experiences discontentedness, it gets more discontentedness because of this additional craving, desire, attachment that's on top of whatever the initial one was that caused you discontentedness. So you've just got to understand that you're going to be discontent. The mind is going to be discontent for many more weeks and many more months and maybe a few more years, Holly, it's going to be discontent. It's just going to happen. Just accept it. But instead of being frustrated or irritated that it is discontent, instead, just look internally and try to figure out what's the craving, desire, attachments that are causing it and eliminate those so that it will no longer experience on that particular craving, desire, attachment because you have many that you need to eliminate. Think about the mind like a bunch of rubble and, and rubbish in the back of a pickup truck. And Holly's from Alabama, so she knows what a pickup truck is, right? Think about your mind like a whole bunch of rubbish in the back of a pickup truck. And there's like a cargo net that is holding the mind down in this unenlightened state. And this cargo net has you know, many different anchor points all the way around the bed of the pickup truck. Well, the mind is unliberated. It's being controlled by this craving desire attachment. And all these anchor points around the pickup truck are all these individual craving desire attachments. And any one of these craving desire attachments can flare up and it keeps the mind trapped in this discontentedness. Well, what you're doing in this practice is you've got to become aware of each of those individual anchor points of the cargo net around the pickup truck. And slowly but surely, as you become aware of those anchor points, you've got to go around and cut them. You've got to snip that anchor point. Okay, boom, this one anchor point just got released. Ah, the mind can breathe a little bit, but it's still trapped. It's still got many craving desire attachments. And now you become aware of another one. Ah, look at that craving desire attachment. Now I've got to cut that one. Your mind isn't going to be liberated until you cut every single one of these anchor points. Every single one of these craving desire attachments, you have to skillfully learn about, you have to skillfully understand, and you have to skillfully eliminate in order for the mind to be fully liberated. And it's not going to get to that point for a really long period of time. Just consider yourself 
that you're never going to get enlightened in this life. Just, okay, I may never get enlightened in this life, and that's okay. But I'm just going to work as best as I can to learn and practice as I can in this life and do the very best job possible to become aware of these individual craving, desire, attachments and cut them wherever I see them. And as you do, this cargo net will come off the mind more and more, and now it will be liberated from being held down by all this craving. A question from Sarah. She says, are these things only about my conduct towards others or also about my conduct towards myself? I noticed it is easier for me to notice when I am not doing right speech towards others since it appears more obvious than towards myself, like being too harsh to myself, too impatient, judging or, bl or blaming myself for things which are not my fault. Is the Eightfold Path also including my conduct or speech towards myself? Yes, absolutely. Because when you are practicing right intention or harmlessness, you've got to have that directed at your own mind as well. In that inner voice that oftentimes people have in the mind, if it's speaking to you negatively and telling you all these horrible things, you've got to clean that part up too. That's the mind, right? The mind causing its own discontentedness. That's why the six senses that we talk about or the six doorways of discontentedness, it's not just the five senses that we know about. It's also the mind as well because the mind will cause itself to be discontent through wrong speech internally in the mind, you've got to clean that up too, where you're always looking at positive things, wholesome things, always looking to cultivate wholesomeness. One of the things that I remember from my time when I was in America is that whenever it would rain, people would get very negative and, and sometimes uh, disgruntled, like, oh, it's raining out, like, oh, it's raining. Well, it's just raining, right? When I came here to Thailand, it's like when it rains, people are like, all right, it's raining. Yeah, because now it's not as hot. It cleans up the streets. It makes the plants grow better. So we get more fruit, more vegetables. So people are actually joyful here when it rains. I had never seen that before until I came to Thailand. And that's when I realized that whatever's happening in front of us, it's all perception. We can take any event and we can choose to look at the positive side or we can choose to look at the negative side. It's completely our choice. So when you've got that negative voice in the mind, you've got to evict that girl or evict that guy or whoever it is in there. You've got to evict them from the mind and start thinking positively about all situations. It doesn't mean you ignore things that are problems in the world. It just means that you look for the positive side of things and you look for solutions rather than always looking at the problems. We have a question from Mika. Can body scanning in Vipassana meditation help in being aware of bodily sensations besides breathing mindfulness meditation? That's what I understand from Vipassana practitioners. It seems like that's what is happening. But I've never actually practiced Vipassana meditation, so I don't know. But it seems like that's what they're doing through their body scanning, is becoming more aware of the bodily sensations and that first foundation of mindfulness. So you would have to speak with someone that practices Vipassana. 
I didn't need Vipassana meditation for this. I observed it in daily life. In the past, when I used to get angry, I started noticing the bodily sensation before the mind actually kicked off into anger. Also, while in breathing mindfulness meditation, if there was a little tickle or a little sensation or a piece of dust or a fly or something on the surface of the skin of the body, I observe that as a bodily sensation and develop the ability to observe the bodily sensations. So you can try Vipassana and, and connect with somebody who does that because it seems like that's what they're doing with Vipassana body scanning, but I wouldn't know myself because I actually didn't use Vipassana in the practice that I developed. Thanks, David. We have no more questions at this time. All right. So just moving on to the thing that I was planning to share with you guys to kind of encapsulate this. If you're going to kind of screenshot something or copy and paste something or take notes on something, this would be like a really good kind of like one page way to kind of encapsulate the entire path in a very consolidated way is that here what I've done is I've listed out all of the eight steps and then I've just really briefly summarized it in as short a words as possible. So right view, it's the Four Noble Truths, essentially accepting responsibility for your own intentions or feelings, your own speech and your actions, essentially being accountable for everything that happens in your life, that anything that happens in your life, good or bad, it's because of your own decisions. Don't ever be misled by the mind or anyone else ever again, that when wholesome things are happening in your life, you're willing to take credit for that and that's all because of you, right? Well, when unwholesome things are happening in your life, this is because of you too. So accept accountability and responsibility for everything that's happening in your life. That's right view. And be sure that you deeply understand the Four Noble Truths and that anytime the mind's discontent, you always look for the craving, desire, attachments that are causing it. Right intention is the practice of having the intention of harmlessness, non-ill will, not being interested in harming anything or anyone or any being. Right speech is the five factors of well-spoken speech, like I shared those in today's class. Right action is essentially the five precepts, which is what we're going to be talking about in two weeks, and refraining from gambling. Essentially, what right action is all about is not causing harm through your bodily actions. So the Buddha never says anywhere, don't punch anybody in the face, right? He doesn't say that. But in right action, if you understand that right action is all about not causing harm through your bodily actions, then you know not punching someone in the face is very wise for you. Don't punch him in the stomach. Don't punch him in the shoulder. Just don't harm anyone through your bodily actions. Don't harm any property through your bodily actions. So purify your bodily actions. Right livelihood is about abandoning the five wrong livelihoods that I spoke about. Right effort is practicing those four aspects of right effort. And what this boils down to is eliminating unwholesome qualities from the mind and arising wholesome qualities in the mind. Right mindfulness is having awareness of mind, 
being aware of the thoughts and feelings that arise in the mind, specifically getting to the point where you fully understand the four foundations of mindfulness of bodily sensations, feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. This is usually something that I talk about in a specialized class, or once you move into the Polycanon in English study group that we learn on Saturdays. Because once you're studying with the words of the Buddha, that's the time where I introduce the four foundations of mindfulness. But for now, work on developing this awareness of mind. And specifically, if you can work on observing these bodily sensations that happen prior to any feelings arising in the mind. Right concentration is to develop your meditation practice and developing singleness of mind outside of meditation, where you're only doing one thing at a time at any given time. And this will help to refine the mind to be more and more concentrated, more and more focused, more and more refined, so that you can develop this clarity of mind and bring the mind into the present moment with singleness of mind, which is going to help all of this work much, much better. So any questions on this? Because this is all that I had to share with you guys today. And I would just like to be sure that you fully understand both in detail and then in this kind of summarized way of what the Eightfold Path is and how these steps all work together, because this is your life practice. You need to deeply, deeply, deeply understand this, soak it into the mind and see how to actively apply each of these individual steps to your life in your life practice. Do you think in some sense, David, that this path is just all about becoming a better and essentially becoming a good person? Yes, that's what this whole path to enlightenment is, is abandoning those reactive, instinctive, kind of animalistic behaviors where we're reacting and we're and when somebody doesn't do what we want, we right? That's kind of that anger and hostility. That isn't how a human being should function. A human being should be calm and peaceful, polite, respectful, friendly. We can do this, but with this pollution in the mind, this craving, this anger, this ignorance or unknowing of reality, it's very difficult and human beings will struggle. And that's why we've struggled our whole life. But through learning this path and purifying the mind in this way, you're now going to train the mind to become a better and better human being where now you can function in the world with ease and you will find that your personal professional relationships will just be so easy and so smooth. It doesn't mean you're never going to meet a challenge. When you're enlightened, you're still going to have challenges in life. There's still going to be challenges that arise. But by that time, your mind will be so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And you will have so much wisdom that no matter what challenge arises, you will be able to handle it with a calm and peaceful mind. And you will be able to apply wisdom to the situation to resolve it. Because what happens in the unenlightened mind is we look at things as, problems. And now when this problem happens, the mind thinks it's permanent and it gets angry and it gets frustrated and it lacks the wisdom and the mental discipline as well as the moral conduct to be able to apply wise decision-making to solve it. So it just struggles. 
But as the mind becomes more and more awake, more and more enlightened, you have this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline that now you're going to see things as challenges. This challenge has arose. How do I apply wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline to this in order to resolve it? Because I know it's impermanent. Anything that arises in your life, it's impermanent. It's just a matter of making the right decisions to improve the situation. So rather than looking at things dreadfully as problems and that they're going to be permanent and they're weighing down on your shoulders, instead, ah, here's this challenge. Let me see how to apply this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline to resolve this impermanent challenge, right? And if you can look at things this way, it often can become quite enjoyable to start applying these teachings in a way that moves this challenge to a better and better result. And as you do this, applying these teachings more and more and more in your life, that's part of how you accumulate wisdom. Because right now, it's a bit cumbersome because your mind has always done things a certain way in the past. And that's why it struggled. But now you get these new teachings, this better way of life that the Buddha talked about. And now you've got to kind of figure out. You've got to slow down. You've got to think and you've got to ponder about this new challenge that arose. And how do I apply some of the Buddhist teachings to this? And when you do, the first time you apply the teachings, you might only apply it kind of 20 or 40 percent. But that's more wisdom that you now have of how to apply these teachings in that situation. That same situation arises again. Okay, I'm going to use that same 20 or 40 percent of wisdom that I learned last time, but now I'm going to add some more. And now it's 60 or 80 percent solution. Okay, now you've got more wisdom because you've you're practicing and you're seeing how these teachings work in a real life setting. Well, now that situation happens again. And based on the previous situations and all the wisdom that you have already acquired, now you apply more wisdom. And now, whoa, that actually worked in that situation. And it completely got resolved 100%. Now you've got wisdom. But that doesn't mean every single situation is going to be exactly the same as that. So you've got to go through life experiencing all these various challenges, all this gamma that you produced in the past. You've got to now experience all of that as you were experiencing before. But now you've got to do it through this eightfold path, cleaning up, using your wisdom, using your new moral conduct, using your new mental discipline and clean up all of these unwholesome decisions that you've made in the past. The very first unwholesome decision that you've got to clean up is your own moral conduct, your own mental discipline. This is why you've got to learn and you've got to bring your practice up closer and closer and you've got to work on your own mind. And then as you become a better and better human being, as you say, James, now you can work skillfully with your children, perhaps maybe with your life partner, maybe with your coworkers. You're not trying to change them but you're now more skillfully able to make decisions in the moment that lead to better and better results. So you've got to gradually learn this path, gradually apply it, gradually acquire this wisdom, and then it's just an iterative process. You gathered this wisdom, now you've got to learn some more, now you've got to practice some more to gain some more wisdom, 
And now you've got to learn some more, practice some more, gain some more wisdom, apply that. And you just go through this iterative process of bringing the mind up closer and closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where you're fully upgraded to enlightenment 9.0, where the mind's now functioning on this new operating system and things are just so seamless for you. But you're going to have to go through some struggles. It's not just peaches and cream. It's the yellow brick road. There's challenges on the yellow brick road. And you've got to face each of those challenges. But as you do, use it as an opportunity to gain more and more wisdom. Don't be frustrated and bogged down into how difficult this one experience is because this one experience is impermanent. Instead, use this experience that you're facing right now as a way of learning and deepening your wisdom and gain more wisdom through applying these teachings in this particular situation. Those are all the questions we have for today, David. And as always, thank you for sharing with us. Yes, you're welcome. Quite a bit of a challenge to talk about the Eiffel Path in just one session, but hopefully if you are participating in this program, you've already gone through the other sessions where I talked about the Eiffel Path, or if you're joining us for the first time, you can look back on our YouTube channel or on our podcast where I did three individual sessions on the Eightfold Path, breaking down each one of these sections piece by piece as wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, where you can get a lot more depth in each one of these areas. So you've got that as resources to investigate. You've also got this book that you can download or you can get from Amazon and you can read what I wrote in there. There's also other talks that I did in the past, not just those three separate talks, but there's talks that I did six months ago on the Eightfold Path. And there's a talk that I did a year ago on the Eightfold Path. So the more you learn about this Eightfold Path and really soak it into the mind and then get help as you need help to apply this in your daily life and see how to apply it to any given situation, reach out for help by posting questions in the Facebook group, by asking questions in class, by private messaging or scheduling an appointment where you can meet with me privately and you can share a certain situation that you're experiencing and ask for some guidance about how to apply these teachings in a real world situation. Because that's where things really start to connect. When you start seeing how to take this theoretical understanding and this kind of intellectual learning and moving it into practice and actually applying it in a real life situation, that's where the real wisdom gets produced. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment by just learning intellectually. There's plenty of people that intellectually know the teachings of the Buddha, but the way that you change the condition of the mind and the condition of your life is by moving these teachings into practice. And it's in your practice and applying them in daily life that's where you gain the real wisdom. And it's that wisdom that is going to liberate the mind because now with more wisdom, when you find yourself in a similar situation again, you're just going to apply this wisdom that you found and you're going to find better and better results in any challenges that you encounter. So intellectual learning is really important, but you've also need to reflect and you need to move it into practice and seek guidance of how to apply it to your daily life. And that's where you acquire that wisdom that's going to ultimately liberate the mind. 
Next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 6, which is a fairly short chapter. So we're going to be talking about the middle way. And that's a great time that you've kind of now been studying some pretty deep topics like chapter 3 was all about enlightenment and what that is. Then we studied the Four Noble Truths, now the Eightfold Path. So with chapter 6, it's a bit of a little bit of a break for the mind that there's just a very short, short, short chapter and kind of a lighter talk that we're going to have next Sunday. But nonetheless, this aspect of the teachings of the Middle Way relate to the Eightfold Path. So the more that you spend time this week understanding what the Eightfold Path is and applying it to your life in real world situations, then when we talk about the Middle Way next Sunday, you'll understand that more clearly. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing the Buddhist chanting, our second class of that four-part series to help you improve your Buddhist chanting and training the mind to ease the mind into meditation and get better results out of your actual meditation practice. So thank you for joining. I really appreciate that you're taking the time, effort, and energy to learn and practice these teachings. Remember, a short way to think about this Eightfold Path and just how to conduct yourself on a daily basis is just treat everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. If you do this, you have a tendency to be practicing these teachings in a very good way and putting all of these things together in a better and better way. So always think about being polite, being kind, being friendly, being respectful, even in situations, especially in situations where people are impolite to you, unkind to you, unfriendly to you, and disrespectful to you, you don't allow your mind to be affected by that. But instead, you maintain your practice because the only way to extinguish this unwholesome gamma is for you to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. If you allow the mind to practice the opposites of those, you're just continuing to make unwholesome decisions, and therefore you're just extending the amount of unwholesome gamma that you're going to ultimately have to extinguish. So the sooner you start practicing this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, you'll be able to extinguish all these unwholesome decisions from the past and get the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. And you'll be so glad you did. So I'll see you in our next class, either Wednesday or Sunday. And for those of you guys that participate on Saturday, I may see you then as well. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.